0: Rockheads, put your head in the cloud and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number four twenty three with guest Pablo Castro. Recorded live Monday, February 9, two thousand nine. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who's walking shoes have got the too much booze blues, Carl Franklin!
1: Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We are here for your .NET listening pleasure for the next hour or so. Uh, Richard, anything happening in Vancouver? Are you snowed under? Is the sun coming out? What's going on? The sun is out, and the painters are in my house. That's always a good sign. Yeah. I have a band in my house. Yes, you've been having a good week. Yeah, I basically hired three studio musicians last week. Well, as of this publishing, just time shift, right? Yeah. Yeah, it always happens that way. (laughs) So last week... I hired three really incredible studio musicians to come in and do a solo album with me. And this is different than, uh, you know, it's a faster paced work than I'm used to. Because what I'm used to is is working on stuff in dribs and drabs, but everybody left town, so I, I had an opportunity to just focus. And uh, it's going to be phenomenal. Anyway, let's uh, talk about Better Know a Framework now. <laughs> All right, man. Better know framework is a section I do on .NET Rocks where I shine a little light in a dark corner of the .NET framework somewhere uh, on a class or a namespace or type or something so that you can see what's going on without actually having to do anything. Just listen. You'll learn. So today's class is system.windows.setter. And, of course, system.windows is where WPF lives. Right. So uh, the setter class is uh, represents a setter that applies a property value, and as it turns out, styles and triggers, um, triggers that uh, classes that inherit from trigger base, use setters to apply property values. You have to specify both the property and the value properties on a setter. Now, this is XAML, right? So in XAML, you'd have a style, and then inside the style, you uh, create a setter. Setter property equals font family value equals Arial, for example. And, uh, you know, I don't want to read XAML to you, but there are other examples in the documentation. So go take a look at it. Setters. Awesome. Don't live them, love them.
2: Got an email. I do indeed, sir. And, you know, every so often I, I worry that I, we've missed good emails uh, because sometimes we get a real flurry of great ones. And uh, so I've been taking some time and thumbing through our listener mail, and I ran across a great one from back in June of 2008 from Rob Collins. Let me read it to you. Gentlemen, great show. I agree with most of the effuse praise you get in your emails, so just replay it in your head. (laughs) Nice. But let me give you a compliment you don't hear every day. The audio quality is so high on .NET Rocks that I can listen to it on headphones when I ride my bicycle on the back trails of Colorado. Other wimpy podcasts
1: are drowned out by the wind. How do you do that, Carl? Well, what we do is we boost the signal and limit it. So that means typically when you amplify a digital signal, it will peak. And peaks are bad in digital when it goes above zero. And that's fine for analog tape where you saturate the tape a little bit and it warms it up. But with digital, it just sounds like... So we use a limiter process... To uh, And, and it basically sounds like a traditional radio station, you know, where everything's pushed volume-wise. And the right. reason isn't because we want to be loud. The reason is because you, your headphone devices, your iPods and things, they have only so much power. And so when you start with something that's louder to begin with, it's easier to listen to. You don't have to turn it up really loud in order to hear it. So that's, that's the difference. That's what we do. Very clever. We always We're... did that from day one, and that is the exact reason why.
2: Awesome. And it's you know, one of many things we do to make this show sound as good as possible, because that's what we love. Right, let me keep going. I recently listened to a number of your shows, and I picked up on a connection between two of them that may not have been immediately obvious. The first was show 335, Jonathan Zuck on the politics of OOXML. And that was the show where John was talking about how there was this huge battle around the the open office specification. Yeah, right. This was fascinating stuff. Jonathan had an excellent deconstruction of how IBM and Sun are trying to game not only the political system, but also the open source community. Granted, Microsoft's history of corporate governance is not exactly sterling, but it's ironic that IBM, who was considered the evil software empire when Bill Gates was still in short pants is now the flag bearer for the open source community. I'm a fan of the open source community, but I'm continually surprised by the assumption that anything from Microsoft is bad or evil. I'm an advocate of good technology wherever it comes from. That leads me to show 345 Dmitry Osipov on the enterprise service bus. There's a big part of this story that Dmitry did not address, and I can probably guess why. BizTalk is a great solution in a typical enterprise scenario, where there are systems and applications of all kinds, and the integration needs are complex. This is a space where IBM has long been a dominant player. IBM's competitive offering is a suite of products, which go under the WebSphere brand. One of the big differences between BizTalk and WebSphere is that BizTalk does a whole lot of things right out of the box. To get equivalent functionality out of WebSphere, you have to combine a number of products, which often don't integrate all that easily, although an army of IBM consultants is happy to help. Uh, If you're willing to pay the price. At some point, IBM, by virtue of necessity, started pushing the concept that the enterprise service bus was the right solution for enterprise integration. IBM's generic description of the enterprise service bus tracked incredibly closely to their own suite of products. Shocking, really. What was deviously clever was that IBM said that BizTalk's strengths were a problem. That is, all the built-in functionality was just giving customers features they didn't need. It was better to approach things a la carte. IBM also claimed that Microsoft didn't really even have an enterprise service bus offering since BizTalk didn't fit into IBM's narrow definition of the concept. I couldn't help but see the similarities between what IBM does in this market space with what they were doing with the ISO, the International Standards Organization. That is trying to mask sales tactics as neutral analysis. I think the big motivator for Microsoft's Enterprise Service Bus Initiative is just to rebut the game its competitors are playing. By applying some patterns and extensions to BizTalk, Microsoft can show that it can easily meet the definition of an Enterprise Service Bus. But it's not often you hear a Microsoft person like Dimitri come right out and say that they're moving directly against competitors. For instance, when was the last time a Microsoft representative came out and said that Silverlight was targeting Flash, when it obviously is what they're doing? Maybe it's a corporate lesson learned from back in the day when Microsoft would shout from the hills that they were out to destroy, say, Lotus One Two Three. Keep up the good works, guys. It matters. Rob Collins. And P.S. Richard, you are the type of guy I would absolutely kill to have on my team if I were starting a BizTalk project. As you picked up on Dimitri's interview, BizTalk straddles the line between a development platform and an infrastructure-based solution. The people who are most successful with BizTalk
1: generally have one foot in both the dev and system engineering camps. You know, it's interesting how people assign uh, sort of evil intentions to just basic business you know when mcdonald's puts up a store in a neighborhood and they do really well and then you see burger king across the street you, you wouldn't say burger king is trying to put mcdonald's out of business right you know you they they see that uh, a particular product or, or service is uh, working in some area and they say well let's get some of that that's all this is
2: Yeah, nothing unusual but
1: it's funny how in community stuff it gets a little weird that way well, it's just because people feel really strongly about their technology, you know, dare I say, religious about it. Sure. And because, you know, it's something that takes time to learn, takes time to understand, and uh, and then, you know, you have the market forces out there saying, try this, try this, no, try this. Absolutely. <laughs> and I also like Rob's point
2: about, you know, it's useful to have your, your feet in two camps. You know, I, I've certainly harnessed... Uh, my interest in both development and IT infrastructure on scaling websites and other kinds of applications, but it, you know, BizTalk is another product just like that. Yeah. There's, There's money to be made out there, guys, if you're looking for something to do in getting your head around both infrastructure-related
1: stuff as well as development stuff. Yep, very good. Our guest today is Pablo Castro. Pablo is a software architect in the data programmability team part of the SQL Server group at Microsoft. He's contributed to various areas of SQL Server over the years and is currently working on how to make data and the web work better together. Before joining Microsoft, Pablo worked on distributed inference systems for credit scoring and risk analysis. And before that, he spent time designing and building development tools and frameworks for groupware applications back when groupware was a buzzword. Welcome back, Pablo. Hey, thank you. And I say back because uh, what show was it? Oh, way back there. We, when we like were talking about Astoria. Two
2: eighty-nine when Astoria was a brand new idea when it was still a code name.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. Which turned into uh, data services, of course, or do we yeah. call it Adonet Data Services?
3: Uh, well, now we have a perfectly corporate
1: compliant name for it. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of like Astoria. It's a uh, same, same case with all the code names.
3: Yeah, me too. I resisted that I could, but you know how it does, how it goes.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: So, uh, I mean, ADO Data Services has shipped now. It yeah. works. People love it. Yeah, hopefully. It. Uh, I know uh, Stevie Forte was one of the guys who has been using Astoria to, to supply data for a variety of his demos, all kinds of link stuff too, right? Like you can link into Astoria pretty painlessly.
3: Yep, Yeah, That's part of the trick.
2: So, where uh, are we still at version one? Effectively, is there a new version coming?
3: Yeah, uh, you could call you know version is kind of uh, tricky because we went went into an existing framework. So you could call version one the thing we shipped uh, late last year, and uh, we we called that version one, and uh, so that's part of .NET 3.5 SP1. Right. And um, so now that we're done with that, now we're yeah we're we're certainly working on the next version. Uh, again, uh, the word "version" is again kind of weird, but yeah, we, I mean, we keep working on Astoria.
1: So, what's uh, what's coming down the pike then?
3: Um, uh, I would split it in in, in two areas. Uh, one is, you know, we we built the first version and actually we had um, so it it went well. We had uh, more uptake than we expected, and uh, one of the things that happened is, uh, in addition to the Bread developer taking the Astoria bits to build Silverlight apps and maybe a few services. The the other people that picked up Astoria were, were um, um, big web properties like uh, for example you know some of our own Windows Live properties or even the, some of the Azure properties. Uh, and those guys um, have a somewhat different problem. In particular, they have a crazy scalability challenge in front of them. Right? Uh, they're saying we're going to run services that scale arbitrarily. Like, they, you know, as long as you pay them for whatever they charge, they'll keep growing their system and they're not going to slow down or anything. Wow. So, one, you know, if you think about, for example, the Azure offering, in particular, the Azure Table Service, which actually runs uh, data services bits. Well, they, I mean, they're a storage system for the cloud, right? And they, I mean, they require scalability basically without limits. So, uh, one of the areas where we've been spending a lot of time on uh, was... How do you, what do you need to do to Astoria or to data services so that they can actually scale to that level? Because we, I mean, we wanted the storage interface of Azure to be Astoria compatible, of course, because we, you know, we had all of this momentum around it. But um, the question is, could they use the actual data services runtime, the exact same one we ship, or do they need to re-invent, reimplement the protocol with a different runtime? And we really wanted to use what we had. I mean, it was already expensive to build it. Why build it twice? Um, so... Uh, we actually been working on that to the point that so we extended the, the data services runtime to the point that they actually are running it now. So there is Azure Table runs it now. The SQL Data Services also has a data services based interface, and uh, you will see others coming uh, where they 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 use a data service interface and they actually run the data services framework on the backends. And uh, so we made a bunch of changes in in Astoria for that, and that actually has taken an interesting amount of time because. Yeah, you know, it's a different problem space. It's like a very high-end uh, target space, very different type of developers and so on. Um, so that's one area. And the other area is, of course, uh, you know, uh, we really like our breadth developers, the developers that use this system to build actual applications. So yeah. we've been working on enhancing that space, how to make a story at the same time more approachable for developers and to stay on the standards space, how to make it fit better on, on standards, how to make it interoperate, interoperate better with standards tools and so on. You call that the actual
1: application initiative? Actual, well, oh, I'm just kidding. Well, okay, I was like, "What initiative?" <laughs> Sorry, no, I'm just
2: because <laughs> there may well be a product inside of Microsoft that has that name. Actual yeah, well,
3: application initiative. Actual right. application, yeah, We like you know, actually building something that works or that
1: solves some problem. You <laughs> mean? Right, right, right. So, um, what has been what has been your experience with Azure so far?
3: It's been, yeah, it's been
1: uh, a very to me at least been a very interesting uh, experience end to end because
3: I I sort of got to watch it halfway from inside, halfway from outside. You know, I don't sit on the Azure team, but uh, we deliver bits to them through through data services. Uh-huh. So it's been very interesting to see how, so how the offering evolved, how the thinking evolved from the from the first days to where we landed at uh, the public announcement in you know last PDC, and how it is evolving right now. Uh, I personally love it. Like, uh, uh, it changes it changes the equation significantly on how you develop, deploy, and and run sort of uh, applications from the whole spectrum, from very small to very large. Uh, and uh, sort of it changes the the way you think about resources and infrastructure like completely. And um, you know, we're not alone here. There's a bunch of people in other companies doing the same thing. I I love the overall idea. I think it's very very appealing from the perspective of uh, I'm not sure people understand how much time it is, is spent on op, on operations, especially on the part of operations that people doing it are not skilled on. You know, you're a good developer. I see myself, right? Like, I can sort of manage to write an application. I have the hardest time deploying those things and managing them, especially when you have to make them scale and so on.
4: Yeah. And they're
3: in some ISP. You don't have visibility through the thing.
4: Right.
3: Uh, it's very tricky. And um, so I think there is an opportunity there that is unique. And, um you know, uh, I really like our offering in the in the sense that it's um, you know it's an integrated end-to-end story. You do your stuff in Visual Studio just like any other day, and uh, but then uh, you only need to think about the target environment. But it's same tools, same runtime, same environment, and when you're ready, you deploy and you're deploying to the cloud. Right. So yeah, I'm liking it.
1: Your experience of of using it. How's, how has that been? I mean, uh, have you used it? Let me ask you this: Have you used it outside of the Microsoft network? Because I know, you know, when you're when you're on the network internally, you have access to different resources and things. Yeah. Have you used it from your from your home?
3: Yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I actually try try hard to do those things. Yeah, I, I've tried it, and uh, in general, you know, you can get just too comfortable in these offices and then forget that there is a, an actual world out there you're writing software for. Yeah. So whenever we do these things, I, I, I try to make time and, and try the actual experience. And I went through the whole thing. I signed up. I had to wait for my token. You know, you go sign up for Azure, and uh, you have to wait for a while. Eventually, they give you an email and say, hey, here your, here's your token. You can go create applications. And um, in some senses, it's actually better than the internal experience because internal experience is not nearly as nice. Externally, you have your dashboard. You can control your applications, and uh, you know where to go upload stuff and so on the experience is good i think you know like anything that is a uh, first round there's certain aspect that uh that need some some sort of uh baking time but uh i was very happy uh and we, i actually saw this way after we actually were calling the thing done so i was actually happier to see this happening um the overall end-to-end, especially inside Visual Studio, is pretty good. I, I really like that. You, you know, there are a few things that are not perfect, uh, but um, the fact that you can do a lot of development locally before you even deploy and you have the dev fabric to simulate the environment you're going to be running in, it's, uh, it's very nice. It gets you a very close uh, representation of, what of what, where your application is going to run when it is really deployed. I really like that part. Uh, we we could do better on the storage side of the simulation and we you know the storage guys are actively working on that uh but the the runtime aspect you know the fabric is actually like very close to a real thing and once you know it's working on your environment you you can you know uh you can you can be sure that at least most of the obvious stuff is gone or no no most of the obvious issues are going to be gone by the time you deploy on the real
1: on the real fabric on the cloud in this new version of uh data services that we're talking about with with uh that has access to the cloud do, is the programming experience going to be any different if you're going to be working in the cloud, or is it all just a matter of where the URL is? Yeah, so it's um, in principle it's just a matter of where the
3: URL is. Uh, it, it's identical to actually to the point that you can use the shipping version of of data services uh, to hit the table storage service, for example, and that works today. Uh, okay. In fact, if you're running your if your web application code, the actual compute part, is running on the Azure uh, hosting environment, uh, the, you're, us- you're actually using Astoria or data services from SP1 to hit the table service. So it just works, and the experience is uh, identical. The only difference between most of the services, and this is not an exception, this happens most of the time, is um, like the capabilities of the service. Like some services are strongly typed, some services are loosely typed, some services have schema, others don't have schema. So you know, each one of them is, is different in that sense. Uh, but uh, other than that, those particular aspects of you know what the table service decides to do or not to do, in general, it's, it's, I'm going to say it's just the Astoria experience. There's nothing different about it. So if you already know how to use it, you should be right at
2: home. Uh, Pablo, a little more on Azure. I'd like to get your opinion on this. I'm seeing folks sort of struggling with, I don't want to to commit to this this uh, API, this method of development, if I have to run it on on Microsoft servers. They, they can develop on their own machine. They can do testing and so forth. But there seems to be a big jump from there all the way to the Microsoft environment. And and the call has sort of gone out in a few places now saying we need you know Azure services for Windows servers, something I can run in my data center. What do you think of that?
3: Yeah, so well, I heard it a lot. So and I, so, I've seen I've seen two set of reactions uh, for that. One is, as you said, they ask for can we can we actually? I mean, we love the idea. Can we run it on our own systems? And um, you know, it's reasonable. I, I actually don't know whether or not there are plans for that on the on the Azure like product uh, definition side. But uh, from the requirement perspective, like I I I can relate to the to wanting to pick up the Azure infrastructure or some functionally equivalent thing. Uh, either because you want to avoid the feeling of being attached to Microsoft too much or, or because you can't actually run it on somebody else's data center for, you know, legal or political reasons or whatever, right? right. Um, so one, one reaction has been that, has been say, can you give me these things so I can run it on my own data centers? Uh, the other reaction I've read about uh, was, um, was more around, can we abstract the management and base, like, core services uh, interfaces to the point that you can act, you could actually interoperate or, or move code between some of these services. You know, the reality is that, I mean, we're certainly not alone here, and there's folks like Amazon and Google doing good work in this space. Sure. And there's a question of, can I take my application from one and just put it on the other? And uh, r- right now, it looks very tricky. Uh, environments are substantially different, and also the offering characteristics are different. Uh Maybe over time they'll converge, but right now, each one of them chose to focus on a, on a different aspect. Uh, so you have, you know, on one extreme, you can think of Google hosting only Python code, at least last time I looked. I don't know if this changed, but only hosting Python code. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Amazon that effectively lets you, you I mean, you build a VM and then you just boot it up and it's your box. You can do whatever you want. All right? And there is everywhere in the middle.
2: Right. So you can do anything there. Well, it- and I recently was reading that VMware is, is started making noises about, should we come up with a sort of cloud services standard that everybody can work with? Exactly, exactly. And I don't know that we're there yet. I think there's still a competitive element here where everyone is trying to come up with a better way of going about things.
3: Uh, I, I agree. I, I don't think that would be like almost like commoditizing that infrastructure, right? Yeah,
4: I don't and think we're uh, there yet.
3: Uh, and uh, I, I completely agree with you that uh, companies are still looking for a competitive advantage. And also, they're looking for differentiation, in general. And you can see this uh, just by the very fact that um, Amazon, Google, and, and, um, and Microsoft have somewhat different takes on, on what's easy, what's hard, what we automate, what the developer has to do in order to deploy a, a cloud service. Absolutely. Uh, so people are looking for differentiation very, very strongly in this space. It is a new space, so it's natural. And it's almost, I mean, it's good for the space because uh, you don't want to uh, stop exploration and innovation so early, right?
2: Sure, and and we're still shaking out what does it mean to be in the cloud. And I'm really excited about what data services is doing here because I get this implication, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm already working in data services on my servers, yep. it doesn't sound like it's all that painful to move over to using data services on Azure. In in, in certain cases, it's piece of cake. In certain cases, it can be a little bit trickier. It depends on...
3: Uh, it depends on the nature of what you're doing and which services you're hitting, but certainly if you like if you're accessing some data service that's um, already there and you have certain control over it, you can prepare very well today uh, by sort of looking at what Azure can do today do those things and don 't do the things that are known not to be able to do by by the Azure system right. and then you'll be very very close certainly
2: so you Pablo, you may have solved this problem all by yourself with this data services that I can now build this, run it on my own server, knowing with minimal changes, I can get the data services out to Azure.
3: <laughs> yeah, by no means. I, I, I'm by myself working on this. that.
2: <laughs> it's just Pablo. Pablo knows it all. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it is very, a very exciting idea that we're taking a .NET library, one we already know, deploys with the framework, we can run it on our own gear, and now we have an incarnation that would be Azureable.
3: Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it works today. Like, if you look at Azure today, uh, the table service is running the, Astoria, the server side of Astoria, the compute part is running the client side of Astoria, and we right. talk using the same protocol we use if you were writing your own application with your own server and your own client. And we actually use the same libraries. So the same DLL that they are running, you you have in your box. So there's nothing special. Like we were very careful about this. We're not doing one-offs. We're basically we're doing work for the platform, and we're make we're making sure that it works well for app developers as well for, as for infrastructure developers like the Azure
2: guys. So now, just to clarify, we have Azure, but then there's also the SQL Data Services, right? Yep. Is that a different product? Yes,
3: it's a different product. So um, I tried to navigate. Um, I, yeah, I don't. I don't always can repeat the whole uh, thing myself, uh-huh. uh, but uh, about the Azure, uh, the exact name of the Azure offerings. But you can think about, oh, forget about the names for a second. You can think about the Azure platform itself, like the core services. Right. And the core services include the execution environment where you can host effectively your websites or your backend code. You know, there's a web uh, web role and there is a worker role, so you can host both kinds of code there. And then, uh, together with that core offering, is uh, is a set of storage services that includes a blob storage service, a table storage service for sort of semi for structured data, right? And uh, and then there is a queuing system as well. Uh, so all that together, plus the management tools and all the options for scale out, virtual networking, and so on, you can consider that the core of Azure. And then on top of that, we have a, a series of of sort of platform services that are bigger than the core, right? That you can consider them sort of value add, and they come. Uh, some of them are payment services sometimes some some of them come for free and you know it depends on the nature of the service um, so the, the The table service is part of the core the, on top of that, as one of the Azure services, we have these uh, SQL server data services, or I guess the official name now is SQL data Services, which is um, you know it 's another storage system and uh, to think about them there's different products and you can think about them as the the table storage services mostly. Uh, a low level store on the on the cloud right that that accompanies the core offering and uh, they they have a a simple system where you can uh, have entities entities are basically dictionaries with a key and they have a very nice scale out mechanism through partitioning they have a primary index so you can do some fast uh, searches and things like that right. and uh, they have an astoria interface so you can use the astoria programming model against them um, wow. now uh, on the on the other hand a lot of people will like the um, more traditional relational approach to things uh, because, you know, uh, the other one requires you to change the way you think about your schema, your data, your interaction model, and so on. Uh, so uh, the SQL Data Services goal is to is to hit that higher level space where what you want is you want to start to see more of the traditional relational capabilities but in the context of a system that can keep the cloud level of scaling. And, uh, and th- that's the goal of, of uh, SQL Data Services is to and bring as much as it's possible of the, database, of the traditional database stuff that we all like and uh, relay on for our apps and take it to the cloud.
1: Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. You probably know that about 50% of the code in most enterprise applications is dedicated to data access, and about 90% of the bugs and performance bottlenecks come from this code, too. That's why developers rely on Object Relational Mapping Tools, or ORM for short, like the Telerik Open Access ORM. It can help you build a persistent data layer in no time and squeeze out every bit of performance possible. Do you prefer to start from your database tables or from your classes? No problem. Telerik Open Access supports both forward and reverse mapping for six databases. Of course, you can enjoy link support, full Visual Studio integration, and advanced caching. With very little help from you, Telerik Open Access can quickly generate code as good as yours, minus the bugs. Tempted? Curious? Check it out today and download the free Open Access Express Edition at www.telerik.com.
2: When I look at stuff like data mining in the cloud, you need good, clean, relational data to really make that stuff work. You need to have... Uh, atomic data, properly organized, no objects, please. And you need to have a good relational model over top of it so that you can do that kind of analytics. Yeah, yeah, certainly.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. Even in OLTP, you know, there is a, it is a well, very well understood space when you talk about relational systems and how to build apps on top. And um, maybe this is an old person's thing to do, but, you know, I'm sure there is modern things that are very good and all, but cert- sometimes what you need is good predictability on your investment. Right. And uh, the relational space is very well understood, and how to build applications on top of those is very well understood. So there is very uh, there's a lot of value there, right? It's like you avoid relearning, you avoid the risks of investing in a, in a new thing, yet you still get the benefits of running in the cloud, the scale up of the cloud, and the and the ability to manage costs on a sort of as you go basis that uh, that the cloud gives you.
2: Well, and I'm definitely thinking in terms of often we have apps where we're collecting vast amounts of data that may well be mineable. And, you know, the nature of data mining is you're looking for literally that needle in the haystack of data, that unusual connection. But as the data set starts to get big and more and more data, we turn down that level of logging and we're just not able to manage that load of data. So the idea that I would farm that data out to the cloud and let it handle it and then do the mining, that's pretty compelling to me from a business perspective.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's also part of, not only we can handle the data, but also, you know, uh, Azure not only has the, the web application hosting part, but also has a worker profile so that if you want to do some, some serious number crunching, you can do that by creating these boxes that uh, follow the worker profile, which are, these are not visual apps. These are apps that you just set to go and you say how many of these boxes you want, like in the cloud, and you just let them go and they'll do all the number crunching. They have a fast access path into the storage part and, um then, put the output in another store spot, and then you can go pick it up so there is a there is a very interesting pattern sort of growing there like I'm not sure how exploited it is right now, but there is a you know there is a pattern and an opportunity there that uh, I think is very interesting and before it used to mean a lot of money because you would have to go provision all that infrastructure because right. now you can go in, set it up, let it go, run for whatever time you need it to run, and once you're done, you release the instances and you don't pay for them anymore.
2: So how much of SQL Server is implemented in the SQL data services?
3: So right now, the way it is organized, the 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 backend nodes of, or like, the computers that are at the very bottom of the stack in, in, in SDS are actual SQL servers. They're a special build of SQL Server. Right. But they are largely based on SQL Server technology. Now, of that, then we, we have front-ends, and the front-ends imp- uh, expose a subset of the functionality. So we expose things like, um, you know, Filters. We we expose sorting. Uh, we expose. Uh, we recently, well, recently, a few months ago, we introduced join capabilities, so you can do arbitrary joins on on uh, against you know across entities. Um, we also we index all of your properties in. Uh, we keep a primary index with all of the properties, so uh, whenever we can, you know, queries will be handled handled smartly by our query optimizer, so you get the benefit of that. So there is a, quite a few quite a few capabilities there course there's opportunity for more and you can expect expect sort of as we make progress more of the capabilities of sql server starting to show up uh uh, on the service side of things
2: but it's not like i can pick up my sql server database file and fire it to the sql services labs and it's going (laughs) to work we would
3: love that wouldn't wouldn't we
2: oh i love that man let me know when you got it yeah
3: yeah yeah so um let me give you a thought on that and you know uh I love it. I would love it too um uh, so there, is, <laughs> there are two problems there. one is um we need some time to get there because we're you know there is a learning experience here about how to maintain a system where we can uh guarantee scalability guarantee performance and uh, you know uh in a very sort of high scale environment and so on and um so part of it does include how do we take existing apps and move them to the web, but the question is how do we do this in a way that preserve like, gives you the value of the cloud? Like, why is it better than just running it on your uh, on your local SQL server, on the SQL server that maybe you have where you collocate your, you know, your your web servers and so
1: on? Right. Or I love the cloud on your desktop. Well, that was a great one. From the, yeah. <laughs> from the PDC, they so, said that at the demo.
3: Um, so there is, I think, there are two key aspects here. One is the manage- manageability thing. It's like, you don't want to think about managing your servers and have them tuned and all that. The, the thing just goes well, right? And for that, you could imagine, I'm not sure this ever happened, but you could imagine a world where you upload your database file and you're all set. The other question, which I think is uh, also important in this space, is uh, about scalability. And um, it is very tricky to think of a world where you have a single image system, like a single database, and it just scales arbitrarily to any amount of data and any amount of traffic. Uh, I think for at least for a while, you will see partitioning schemes permeating through the interface. Just like you know, Azure, and both Azure and SDS today have you know con- some concept of a, a scale unit. Like in the case of SDS, it's called a container. In the case of um, Azure Table Services, it's called a partition. And you can have any number of partitions or containers that you want, and that's how you scale up, you, or you scale out rather, You scale by partitioning your data and then being smart about how you formulate your queries so it touches a minimum amount of partitions. Right. And uh, I think people will have to get used to think that way. Like, if you want arbitrary scale, if that's what you're looking for, which is not just getting your database managed in the cloud, but also get, uh, be able to manage an, a huge amount of data, which goes along with you, what you were saying. It's like, I don't want to lose data anymore. I don't want to get rid of my logs or being conservative about it. I want to collect all my data. I don't care. Right, and for that you need to think about partitioning. You think about need to think about how you organize your data such that access is uh, like it maintains reasonable speeds, and such that you can make best use of the partitioning schemes that are used in the underlying systems.
2: So it still doesn't get to the real challenge, which is how do I load an existing data set up to SQL Server Labs?
3: Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good point. We uh, this topic comes up often. Like right now, we don't have a simple bulk copy interface or something like that. So you have to go row by row, and um,
2: you know that's not super fast. So you basically write a a chunk of code that walks through your database and sends up to the labs exactly. row by row. Exactly.
3: But uh, you know that'll take a, a a significant amount of time. And uh, there are certain things you can do to reduce that. But in principle, the interface is not working for you in that case because. Even if you can get into a place where you have a low latency link and things like that, you're still doing a full operation per row, which is uh, a very unhappy place to be. Um, so, But this comes up, comes up often, and it's something we, we know about. And um, so at some point, we will introduce uh, better features that go from, like, I, I can't talk about the specifics, but you can think of things like, uh, having better batching support, for example, so being able to do multiple operations at the same time is something that we would like to do at some point in the future. And a more general bulk loading thing may be something that we get to someday. We, I mean, it's certainly something that people are, are asking a lot about.
2: The energy around Azure definitely seems to be green, new greenfield apps. They're not really thinking about how do I migrate my existing app to Azure but or existing data sets or any of those things, but build something new using this environment.
3: Uh, yeah, it's certainly the minimum resistance path. Uh, you know, Porting an existing app, is it depends on where the the, the big chunks of the complexity of the app are. It, it has different levels of complexity. If your app is very heavy on behaviors, maybe you do some compute stuff and stuff like that, and you have a simple storage requirement um, from the schema perspective, then maybe you don't mind rewriting the storage access path, which is a different part right now, and then just upload it. If uh, for traditional lab applications or you know data-centric applications, while the capabilities are there, they're different. So yes, I I agree that uh, there is a like a resistance bar there. You have to rewrite more, so it's a little bit more painful. Uh, but um, I, I think that's something we need to work about uh, to work on because I'm sure there is a bunch of people that would happily move their applications to the cloud if they could get away without touching them.
2: Right. Yeah, they, it just seems to me like low-hanging fruit. Some apps make sense to this, and if there was ways to get there, they would. But, granted, we are in the incubator phase of this. Yeah, I agree. I'm I just agree. being difficult. Yeah, no, I, I
1: agree. We have uh, we have ways to go. Well, um, what what's on the horizon? There, were there a lot? I mean, obviously, you guys have a list of features that you wanted to implement, and it's always bigger than what you can. Of course, yeah, yeah. Where do you see where do you see data services going from here?
3: Uh, so we'll probably, so we'll do a, a release uh, soon, and um, we'll probably include, one of the things we wanted to do is include all of the changes we made to data services so that uh, all of these services I've been talking about and, they, and the ones I can't talk about, uh, so we made changes for them to ha- achieve their, their crazy scalability goals, and uh, we wanted to make those changes not as internal bits that were only for them, we wanted to make them public to everyone. So one of the key things the next release will have is a set of features that is not for the uh you know exactly for the hobbyist developer. These are you know things that are optimized for scale and performance over usability. But uh, they allow you to write like crazy scal- scalable services. Uh so we'll include all of these features. You'll effectively you'll get the same bits that we are using. Um so that's one area where you'll see some stuff. The other is we got feedback on you know, a number of medium to small features that, uh, you know, we missed, you know, eventually you run, as you said, you run out of time and you have to decide what's in, what's out. And we, my favorite one is we don't have a simple way of getting the count of rows, you know, that, you know, you need the kind of thing when you do paging, which everybody does. Uh, if you want to know you're in page three of 50 or something like that, you need to know how many rows are total. And um, we were like, well, we can live. This is a tiny feature. We can live without it. You know, there are other things that take precedence. We didn't do it, and people got angry at us. So <laughs> now we're doing things like that. We, we, sometimes we call that fit and finish, which is you know, features that um, uh, are not absolutely key by themselves, but they get in the way of having a good end-to-end picture. Uh, so we're doing a few of those, like row count. Uh, we're doing things like uh, feeds. Like a lot of people, you know, Astoria is, is sort of a two-in-one thing. It's uh, an end-to-end experience to exchange data across the web between clients and servers on our platform, but it's also a services platform. You, you can use Astoria to create services, just like the Azure one, or things like that, that are just to share data with the world, be authenticated or not, with rules or not. But in general, share data with everybody. And in that case, uh, it's interesting to have the the Astoria uh, interface be used by other programs that basically take the data and parse the responses and use it for something. But also, since they are standard. Uh, formats mostly we use, you know, Atom and JSON. And in particular, Atom is something that there is end-user readers for that, right? So you can point to an Atom feed, for example, and IE or, you know, any, uh, any feed reader will happily show a human-readable version of it. Uh, so we didn't uh, put that much emphasis on that on, on the initial version, and we got a lot of feedback that people would like to build systems that are simultaneously good, uh, produce good output for computers to go, and, and, and process, but also for humans to go point at it and, and be able to read it and to share and so on. So that's one of the things we did is we did a bunch of things to make um, to give developers a lot of control over their feeds and what the feed con- contents are and how do we treat standard elements of feeds and things like that. So you have uh, an option to have a, a nice presented feed that will work very well with uh, existing feed feeders, and at the same time, we still can transport data in full fidelity just like a, a, another computer will need in, in case you want to actually process that information okay. um, so and you know we're doing a, a number of other uh, of other features you know the, which we're slowly also blogging we're behind we said we will blog every design note that we have, and um, you know these ideas always all, all of these ideas sound great when you plan them, and then it turns out that you never have time to go co- sort of meet your commitments, uh, so now we're trying to get back to, up to speed, but we blog. In, in the Astoria team blog, we actually post design notes as we go, so we write about the topics we're looking at, and uh, what we think the right design is, and people can come in and sort of chime in with their opinions on whether we're on track or not.
2: Yeah, speaking of your the Astoria blog, yeah, the, the latest blog post when we were recording this was about a, a fairly nasty bug that survived all the way to production. Yeah, isn't that great? Ah, uh, is that, you yeah, love that? After all this time and all, there be two years of work and you yeah. missed one. You want to talk about it a bit? A bit?
3: Yeah, sure. We, yeah, you know, uh like, this one in particular I, I hate because it's so visible, but, um, so I, let me talk about this bug in particular. This bug was about, so you're talking about the, the workaround for null-ref n- n- on timeouts, right? Which the last yeah, thing we, we yes. talked
2: about in the blog. That's the one.
3: Yeah, so uh, the bug itself is actually pretty sad, I would say, almost embarrassing. And, hey, uh, the, what happens is, like, during certain error conditions, which are actually very common, the Astoria client does not properly catch and rewrite the the exception that happened. And instead, we try to go access something that is not there. So you get a null ref. And um, this doesn't seem to be a big deal because uh, it's, like, an internal thing, except that one of the conditions where this happens is timeout, which actually happens a lot on the web.
2: Yeah, it really does.
3: Yeah, so if you if you use the Astoria client and hit an Astoria server and your query times out instead of throwing a say a network exception or a, you know a web request exception or maybe a data service exception instead we throw a null reference exception <laughs> which is uh, you know pretty sad
2: Yeah that's uh, that's
3: bad <laughs> Yeah yeah it's pretty bad So uh, the problem is not only that the bug is there the bug doesn't prevent any positive case from working or anything so there's no correctness problems which which is what we care about the most is make sure that we never sort of corrupt data or, or, or you know, uh, skip a contract or anything like that. But uh, it makes this ability pretty bad because it, you're unlikely to catch n- Why would you call catch null ref exception, right? Um, so we put the post up there in, in the sort of trying to be transparent even though we were embarrassed about it and to make sure that people understood not only what happened but also how to code around it today such that whenever we fix this, it, your code will continue to work tomorrow.
2: Right. Well, and, and I mean, the fix is not horrible. It's just going off and catching null rest for its exceptions. You shouldn't have to, but...
3: Yeah, absolutely. You
2: know. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, this is, you know, these things happen. We, you know, there is always one of these, uh, you know, that um, you always say, you know, I really hope everything is, is well done, especially you know, when you're almost done with the product and eventually you go like, okay, yeah, go, just ship it. The thing's done. And then you're always nervous that something like this is going to happen. And, uh, you know, from time to time, it does happen. And here you go. This is one of them.
2: Um, I knew there was a reason we were nervous. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah but, you know, uh, hopefully yeah, you learned the lesson. Hopefully it's not going to happen again.
1: Uh, we'll see. Pablo, uh, what's new in offline services? Um,
3: Good question. Um, so offline is an, an interesting experiment. We'll, we'll see how, how this pans out. What, we, what we're trying to do is to say, look, we have a, we have a main product development train. Right, where we do things in Astoria that we will ship right away and we have partners for and customers for and so on. And uh, what you'll see in the next version of Astoria is a reflection of that, and it's pretty much how we run all of the developer tools here at Microsoft. Right? We gather some feedback. We learn what, we, uh, what was missing. We combine that with things we want to go for the future, like future direction, and then we ship that. What we want to do is, in parallel to that, we would like to be able to explore certain spaces that we think are very interesting, but we can't deliver in a product right away. Offline is an example of that. Um, I think there is a, a very interesting opportunity in the space of services uh, that expose data and applications that are increasingly taking more dependency on that, but at the same time, these applications may not have guaranteed access to the service all the time. And uh, this is sometimes it's because the application may not have network access at all. Sometimes it's because you do have network access, but you're not in your corporate network, so you, you don't want to go VPN in and all that stuff. Right. And uh, yet sometimes you have just fine access to a thing but it's a lot of data and you don't want to wait for the data to move back and forth every time if it doesn't change change too often. You just want a local cache and then you're set. So in all of these cases the common the common theme is you'd like to take a snapshot of the data, bring it locally, be able to work with it locally and if you make changes, push the changes back up to the server. to the
4: right. server.
3: And um so this when when you explain it like this, this sounds like a very well understood space. This is just database replication, right? Right. Well, except that this, I mean, uh, we do things that have to do with the web and data at the same time. And if you're sitting across the web from one another and you have the typical relationship between agents on the web where people don't actually never know each other. this is a random client talking to a random server, um, and they need, to be very low, they, they need to have very low coupling between them. This is not quite the database replication problem. This is a different thing. This is how do I think against a service? right? A service that has the characteristics of a web service. And um, so this is what we want to explore with Astoria offline, is we want to ask the question of, is it possible to design a service interface that is appropriate for, not only for lo- online access, but also for synchronization purposes? And uh, can we make it scale? Can we make it a contract that uh, works appropriately in a web environment and integrates well with the web? Um, can we keep it stressful or should we go into a more sort of uh, operations-centric approach for it. There's a lot of questions there. And then there is, of course, the Uber question, which is, what applications would you go build with that? Right? So this is the goal of Astoria offline. It's, it's, uh, you know, we, we are not supposed to invent a lot of different kinds of releases, uh, so we go by the usual names. But I call this like an exploration exercise, uh, in that it's not the official train of bits or anything like that at least not, not right now. But uh, it's something that we've been working on, we've been exploring, and uh, we're looking for feedback. We want to hear sort of if this is something people are interested in, what are the capabilities they would expect from, the, from a system like this, what are, the, what are the flexible points they're willing to be more flexible, more sort of tolerant about differences on, and, uh, and things like that.
2: Well, and there's, there's obviously stages of development in these sorts of things. If I could just have a local cache, even if it's read-only... Mm-hmm. of a chunk of data that I can pull through Astoria, well, yep. that's pretty, I, there's some apps I can build with that.
3: Yep, yep,
2: yeah, exactly. And then you get into the, okay, now I want to be able to make changes and just push the changes, or I want to just ship the whole setup. You figure out what's different. I mean, it just goes on from there. But you're like, this is a well-defined space. This is a replication problem.
3: Yep, yep. And the question is, is this transportable to the web and how? Right? Like, my favorite example is if you look at all of the replication technologies that... Um, a lot of them you know we actually i sit in the sql server building and we have a number of technologies here like right. you know sql server merge replication and transactional
2: replication and so
3: on all of them are designed with a with a very strong assumption about both ends being databases
2: yes like sql express sitting on the client and
3: yeah yeah you can and you control everything that's your, the other right thing. um and also it's very SQL-ish, right this uh, people exchange sql statements and schema differences uh uh, logs and things like that, uh, which is an assumption you just cannot do on the web, right? On the web, no. you need to uh, have a proper interface and not, not let the, implement, like, the implementation details that support each one of the agents cannot permeate through the interface, uh, because it is just a very diverse place, right? And you need to accommodate for
2: that. Sure, uh, I could have a big glob of data sitting in JSON that I'm altering, and exactly. now I'm going to shove it all back up. And exactly. That was my data store. That's all I've got.
3: Yeah, yeah, and uh, how do you support that? And at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, you have something like the Azure Table Service or even Amazon's S3 or SimpleDB, uh, where these things are not based on traditional database systems. So there's no SQL there or no create table or something, right? Um, so they are just fundamentally different. And the question is, uh, well, I think it, to me it's like pretty obvious that what you need is uh, infrastructure to synchronize services rather than databases. And the question is, what does a, a service interface that allows for synchronization look like? Right. And uh, so I guess if, if I had that answer, maybe this would be a product. Uh, since I don't, <laughs> it's still an exploration effort.
2: Well, and when you're living in a browser, suddenly, you know, your, your sandbox is pretty small in terms of storing data uh, that persists for any length of time. I mean, you're just on a page. I can't power down, come back, expect that data to be there again.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree, I agree and so there, But where is, this
2: really to me gets twisted up was when we start looking at silverlight yep. and other kind of client technologies over the web counting on a story on the back end.
3: Yep. Yeah, there is clearly an opportunity there that is building up into me, into doing um building end to end. Right. Right. Yeah. I uh clearly there is a growing space there that um you know, as you can imagine we're working on we're exploring and uh we need to assess what opportunities are out there, which, which are the ones that uh, I, I think one of the problems with this space, at least for me, is that there are too many things there that you go like, oh, what, what if we do this and what if we do that? And it's just too tempting because uh, like, there is a combination of building blocks that is coming together and it's really exciting and sort of you can imagine of new things that you can do there. And um, the question is, which one of them are actually useful?
2: Yeah, it feels like everything's an edge case.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah an edge case or, or some cool combination of blocks that uh, besides the cool factor, it's hard to determine whether or not you would actually build an app on it. Right. Like you're solving some existing problem or not. So that's, I think, part of the struggle, particularly in that space, you know, when you think about the browser and data and, you know, whether or not there is a place to put it locally, uh, what happens with Silverlight, uh, what happens with Silverlight and a story on the server. Uh, All of these things are, so there's the core scenarios, which I, I, I consider very valuable. You know, you're building a line of business app and you want you know, a data backend. so Silverlight and Astoria work very well together there. Uh, but then there is the more sort of creative scenarios that um, people are exploring that, you know, we while they look very cool, I'm trying to tease apart which ones of those are, in addition to being cool, are actually useful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, definitely, I think Microsoft as a whole struggles with the coolness trap.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I'm going to use that uh, way of putting it. In.
2: We <laughs> just just because it's cool doesn't mean you should build it.
3: Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Don't don't fall into the coolness trap. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good summary. <laughs> that is a good summary.
2: <laughs> so, uh, is there anything to talk about in the context of Astoria and Entity Framework?
3: Uh, uh, sure. You know, uh, Astoria and Entity Framework teams are always very close and uh, together. And
2: yeah, you guys are sitting next door to each other, aren't you?
3: Yeah, yeah. We sit on the same building and um we you know we 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 sort of report up to the same organization so i so i'm actually i don't sit on the Astoria organization per se i actually sit uh uh in basically the organization that grows here is owns both Astoria and the entity framework and other components as well like linked to sql and the sql connectivity infrastructure so right. uh so basically it's the same organization owns all of these things um so uh so we're always sort of working close together there is you know, there are two aspects there. One is uh, fit, like things that the entity framework is making progress on that we want to pick up. Uh, so you can imagine this as sort of the entity framework pushing into us new stuff. And the other is the other way around: is things that we want to do, and um, in in the story side, and we push into the entity framework side to make it happen. So you know, there is always as the entity framework makes progress, we we watch it, and there is a little bit of lag there because um, one of the things we want to make sure is that we don't sort of lockstep the teams too much. Right, so they can make some progress, change plans, make progress again, and so on. So we follow one from the other a little bit behind, but uh, eventually, you know, as we move one of the blocks, you can imagine the other one keeping up.
2: Yeah, and it's, and again, it's that trick of what do I want to grab onto? What do I need to consume? Uh, but I think the entity model has got to be kind of challenging for Astoria. You, you guys seem a lot more table-centric.
3: Um, sort of. You'd be surprised because there are certain things that uh, they uh, cause a lot of pain to us. Like my favorite example is foreign keys. Like so, Astoria. It. I mean, it's designed to expose data as a set of resources, and um, resources are tied together through links, right? So links. When 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 you think about links as associations in EDM parlance it actually works very, very well because you, it doesn't say anything about how these two things are related or how the store knows they are related. It just says, given this entity, if you follow this link, you, you land on the, re, on the related entity. So right. it's a very natural, very high-level thing. Uh, foreign keys, which is a very relational thing to do, but is, um, is, is very sort of uncommon on the EDM side of things, are actually very painful because they disclose too much information about how you know about these two things being related. Right. So uh, the the higher level characteristics of the EDM actually works for us on the storage side very very well, and it allows us to sort of isolate uh, in the details of how we choose to store data from the from the public interface, which is actually very important. It gives us a lot of freedom under under the covers.
2: Well, and you're and you're hinting towards some ideas about how we might be able to provide other data mm-hmm. through the data services interface. Yeah. You know it, it, this whole idea of, like you said, of the uh, Azure Store being the same as against the SQL Store. Uh, w- what other data sources are you contemplating there? This this just sounds like a ton of opportunity.
3: Yeah, there is certainly a lot of opportunity there. Um, so, some is we're looking at the live services and see how we there is how we could align the interfaces that we have there. Um, you know, I, I don't have anything specific to like uh, to talk about just because like we're just talking right now to see about the opportunity. Uh, and, uh, and we're also working with other, pro- with other product groups that do have systems that manage a lot of data, and it would be interesting to, I call it, free that data by putting it on, giving it a service interface such that then you can consume it out there. Uh, like, a lot of them I can't discuss the specifics, but you can, like, you can expect some interesting news about um, systems that carry a lot of data and that we, by putting an an a story interface on top, we make it much easier to share data on those systems.
2: Well, and that's one of those holy grail things of how do I manage large quantities of data well?
3: Yeah, exactly. And how do you put a uniform interface on it too, right? So that uh, regardless of the amount and regardless of the back end, you have a uniform interface to access all of them. So, and then you can go invest in a good set of tools and infrastructure to go mine and explo- exploit the data. And you know that as data moves places or you, as you have more places to create and expose data, you know that your investment in tools and clients and analysis tools actually will go well because they they're gonna work regardless of what is the actual data source.
2: Yeah, that's what I want. I I, I don't want to care what the source is. I want to be able to seamlessly switch between all of those things.
3: Yeah, exactly,
2: exactly. Well, and you, you definitely we're playing holy grail games here. Like if you can get this, we've only you know you could tr- go all the way back to ODBC and say that's what they were trying to do.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we keep trying. Right? We tr- we did OLDC then we did ODB-V. and um, although times changed, like it's funny how um, so c and ODB are good examples of uh, of trying to solve this with APIs with software, right? And um, you know the equations has changed since then, and now uh, the perspective is uh, more on the on the service side. The question is not so much where you can write a client piece of software that you, that does the the uh, sort of the abstraction trick, but it's more like can you come up with a service interface, which is a piece of paper, it's just a spec. Can you come up with a service interface that is good enough for all these cases, right? And you have to define some domain or some set of domains that you want to cover. And then you know, maybe you share the bits, maybe you don't, but the idea is that once you have a, good, a well-defined interface, you build clients and servers to that interface, and there is a lot less dependencies. There is a lot of there is if you do it well, the low the bar is low because um, this is not about fancy, sophisticated interfaces. This is about about interfaces that just get the job done for a particular problem. Um, so perspective changed. Uh, you know, in OLEDB days, uh, as nice as OLDB was from the perspective of integrating different data sources, coding to OLEDB was tricky at best. If you if you wanted to use an ADO, and also it depended like you had to buy into the whole client stack for that. Yes. Whereas now we're saying, look, we're going to come up with an, with an interface that if you have an HTTP client, you're good. And that's yeah, a close very enough. broad set of clients.
2: Well, yeah, and just and you want your data in JSON? Fine. You know, yep. We don't need to care about any of that. Yeah, exactly. But this exactly. sort of begs the question about the existence of link, especially when you get into the link to SQL versus link to entity frameworks. This is supposed to be the common querying language across yep. the platforms. I don't care where yep. my data comes from. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
3: And um, although, like, these are, like, I, I think these are problems in different tiers, right? So, Link is nice. Like, the, the two reasons why I love Link is one is it it brings us a common style of querying for data, regardless of what you're querying. It could be in memory data, XML data, database data, you know, whatever. And, um, and the second one, it brings the frameworks. So if you're in a middle tier hitting the database directly or something like that, the framework is ready to go and gives you a very nice high-level abstraction over the data that you can readily use from from your development environment. And I think that that's an equation changer for me. Like, uh, I, like I, I I really like how you know Link turned out and how it is helping us. It also formalized what a query means, which for Astoria, without that, it would have been very hard to build Astoria because. In the end, what Astoria does is you give it a URL and it turns it into a query. Right. And uh, but we don't want to know which kind of query. It could be a database, it could be Active Directory, it could be uh, you know your own JSON blob, it could be whatever. So yeah, how, I don't want to know. How do I just you represent a query? Yeah, exactly. How do you represent a query without knowing what you're querying? Well, Link is precisely the answer we were looking for. So we actually leverage Link for our own implementation of Astoria and the way Astoria talks to the data source.
2: So. At- and do you have a position or opinion about the situation between link-to-SQL and link-to-entity framework?
3: Yeah, I don't know if I have a position. Uh, you know, uh, we, I mean, what's out there, it's out there. There is not, there is not much to, to be adjusted. Um, hopefully, we, you know, we learned the lesson about communication and, uh, and people are, you know, although it, sometimes it's painful for some people, people now know clearly what our roadmap is what are the opportunities on each one of these stacks, and which one you should use depending on on your target environment, your target scenarios, and the nature of the application you're trying to build?
2: So yeah, and hopefully that the two threads will come together.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are uh, you know we we talk with customers a lot about this. You know, some give feedback, some are you know kind of pissed at us. But, you know, it it is what it is. We're we're trying to help them as much as we can, and uh, they. Uh, the, what we would like to see is how what what is the critical mass of features that they they need in order to build apps and then we'll fold them into the right framework
2: yeah uh, absolutely well and i i hate to to say you know no data access technique left behind yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we gotta we gotta you know, if somebody goes to trouble using something we gotta give them a bridge to where we want them to go
3: yeah absolutely and uh, so I think there is a, an immediate uh, sort of issue around which one you pick, and, you know, there is a little bit of confusion there that we're trying to work through. Uh, but there is also, the, I think, what I think is a higher order bit, which is, uh, we, we're being much, much more transparent about what we're building, how we're building it, and how do we think the next steps of it. So, uh, like, for example, just like we have an Astoria design blog where we post all of our design uh, questions and answers, we also have an entity framework design blog where we post all of the notes for the design discussions around the entity framework, and we take extensive feedback there. Right. So people can go follow what we're thinking around the entity framework and also give us feedback about what things work and what
1: things don't. Absolutely. That brings us to the end of the show. Pablo, thanks very much, and thanks, Richard, for uh, being so engaged while I sit back and, and have the uh, enjoyment of listening to you two talk about this.
2: We went tearing down the data path. That's my uh, my ballyway.
1: It's awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Pablo. Hey, thanks very much for your time. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got by the FCC. is
4: hard.